Welcome to Highbrow Lowbrow, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Paul and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In this episode, Steve examines Ken Russell's biopic Listomania. Is it a work of genius or such a bad film that watching it could induce madness? Whereas Dan tries to salvage the reputation of the musical Xanadu. It was a notorious bomb, but can Dan persuade you that it was a missed opportunity with moments of brilliance? As ever, beware spoilers and enjoy the show. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to Highbrow Lowbrow and welcome to this special musical themed episode where we will be uh, examining two of the most cultish and uh, probably divisive critically but also commercially disastrous but loved by some musicals one from the mid-1970s and one from the early 1980s okay so i will get the ball rolling my highbrow pick for this week is listomania which is ken russell's uh, surreal comedy biopic of franz list now To understand this film, you've got to understand that um, Franz Liszt was considered the world's first rock star. And Listomania was coined by uh, Heinrich Henny as a term to describe the the absolutely wild uh, frenzy uh, of sexual energy uh, and uh, love that... uh, his devotees um, carried for him, particularly women. So at his concerts, women would be uh, passing out as if he was like a charismatic preacher and he did have a good degree of religiosity to him. Uh, They would mob him in the street. They would steal artifacts from his concerts. Uh, Brooches with uh, his his picture were common. They'd wear around their necks and put it under their pillow at uh, at night. So they'd be sleeping with him and and many women slept with him um, in the flesh, shall we say. He had various illegitimate children. He had numerous affairs with married women. So Franz Liszt was the first rock star. And who better to play Franz Liszt than a genuine bona fide rock star, uh, Roger Daltrey of The Who. But I should probably also talk a little bit about who I would say the other rock star in this film, which is Ken Russell. Uh, for anyone unfamiliar with who Ken Russell is, he, he was the enfant terrible of British cinema for decades. He began his career as a stills photographer in the 1950s. By the 1960s, he was making films for the BBC. Now, today, we'd call them drama documentaries. They were documentary biopics of classical composers where he would hire actors, which was new, and they would act out scenes from these composers' lives. Like, he had Oliver Reed play Debussy, and that was a breakout role for them. He did one on Alga. He did one on um, Sibelius. Um, and then just as his career is getting rolling, he did one on Richard Strauss, in which he kind of completely overstated uh, Strauss's links to the Third Reich. And this enraged the Strauss family, who withdrew permission for Strauss's music to be used in the film. And that abruptly ended Russell's career at the BBC. And that would be a kind of signature of his career in that he'd reached these terrific heights But because he was abrasive and uh, hard to work with, even his friends would say he was extremely difficult to work with, he could be a monster, he would have these epic fallings out and get himself into trouble. Nevertheless, uh, in 1969, he kind of graduated a bit from the BBC and uh, had his uh, first feature film, his first feature film hit, which was Women in Love the adaptation of D.H. Lawrence's story. And that film is chiefly remembered today for a nude wrestling scene between two men, which pushed the boundaries. Uh, Alan Bates and Oliver Reed, 
doing some nude wrestling uh, because they're both in, um, in love with the same woman, but obviously homoerotically, they're somewhat attracted to each other as well. And that was a big hit. And then in the early 70s, his career peaked when he had three hit films in the cinemas at the same time in the British top 10 bo uh, of the box office. They were The Music Lovers, his biopic of Tchaikovsky, uh, The Boyfriend, which was a Busby Berkeley style musical, and The Devils, another very controversial piece, but, but financially successful, starring Oliver Reed, his frequent collaborator, about the Catholic Church in, in uh, medieval France. Okay, so now we get to 1975 and Listomania, and I, I should say, if, if you're a classical music purist and you listen to this, you may think that this might be, um, you know, just an, another kind of straight documentary that tells Liszt's life in a linear fashion. It's not. It is surreal. It is chaotic. It is comedic. For instance, we begin uh, with a scene of Liszt in bed with his lover, the Countess um, Maria de Agul, or Marie de Agul, I think that's how you pronounce it. And he's kissing her nipples uh, alongside the tick of a metronome. So when she makes the metronome go faster, well, you could probably guess what happens next. Then the husband walks in, there's a naked sword fight. The husband locks them both in a piano, which he puts on the railway track. And as is a common theme of the film is that the sexual fantasy then descends into either a castration, a fear of castration nightmare or, or some sort of kind of morbid uh, dream. So there's a lot of uh, set pieces like that that are completely ridiculous. There's one involving a, a, a giant inflatable penis, which again kind of starts the sexual fantasy and then turns into a castration fantasy or fear of castration because the <laughs> inflatable penis, one of his lovers, the princess uh, Caroline of Whit Wittgenstein, puts it, the penis in a guillotine. <laughs> it's, it's kind of ridiculous. So the, there's, there's kind of two through lines of plot. List was famous for knowing everyone. He was a man about town and he'd always be at the society parties, not just composers, but he knew all the great novelists, all the great poets of his time. And there's one very kind of fanciful party, a pre-show party at the beginning where he's bumping into Brahms. He's just, you know, hobnobbing with Beethoven and um, he's showing off his lover, Lola Montez, who's completely stalkers. There's a lot of nudity in this film. Insofar as that there's a kind of through line of narrative is that one of his acolytes is uh, Richard Wagner. He was usually dressed in this film in a kind of white and blue sailor's outfit with a sailor's cap, which says Nietzsche on it, as, as a kind of um, hint towards Wagner's extreme anti-Semitic uh, German nationalist views. Now, Wagner looks up to Liszt, but obviously Wagner has some, you know, extremely dubious politics and tension develops in their relationship, particularly when Wagner has an affair with uh, Liszt's daughter, Cosima, who he later married. Meanwhile, Liszt uh, has a relationship with Princess Caroline. I'm trying to remember all the princesses and the duchesses and the popes in this. But she's married, and to get a divorce, Liszt has to kind of reconcile with the Catholic Church. He'd, he, like I said, he'd always had a religious streak, but he'd been talked out of going into the priesthood as a young man by his parents who said, no, you'd have a much better career in the arts. And he would periodically kind of go back to the church for inspiration. Mm -hmm. So to get a dispensation for divorce, he has to meet the Pope and the Pope turns out to be played by Ringo Starr. <laughs> and Ringo Starr admonishes him and says, listen, your old chum Wagner is setting up a religion of his own. He's gone completely doolally 
and we're very worried about what he's doing. So List kind of goes undercover to this old Gothic castle in, in, in Bavaria or somewhere like that, um, you know, the heart of Germany. And he sees uh, Wagner kind of indoctrinating all these children with Aryan views, the children all doing the Sieg Heils. And he confronts Wagner. Um, Wagner doesn't hide anything. He's not the type. He shows him a kind of Frankenstein's monster he's trying to create, which will be the coming man, the kind of Aryan ubermensch of the future. And this Frankenstein's monster is played by Rick Wakeman of Yes. And as it happens, most of the music in this film is, is electronic arrangements of uh, Liszt and, and Beethoven and, and Wagner and whatnot, which were done by Rick Wakeman. And this is his brief cameo. Anyway, um, it turns out Rick Wakeman is, is the coming man, but he's also for the Nordic god of, uh, you know, Funda. <laughs> and it's, it gets so ridiculous. And then, you know, finally he kills Wagner, or he thinks he does, but then Wagner is, um, becomes a zombie, is, rises from the dead, and when he, when he comes out of the grave, he's Hitler. And then from heaven, where Roger Daltrey, List, is enjoying the afterlife with his numerous beautiful women and uh, children, he has to go back to Earth to, to kill Wagner. So obviously the politics of this aren't very subtle, but I think that's what I like about the film is that instead of doing a straight biopic, Russell sees the characters as symbols, symbols of uh, either religion and it's, it's more, you know, benevolent side when List is able to to do something good but also you know extreme nazism is in, in wagner if, if you're a wagner fan you're probably not going to like this it's all very ahistorical because um, wagner and list did have a falling out over cosima which lasted about two years but they reconciled and they were very close at the time of list's death but a couple of things i, I like the cleverness of it because it, it's showing list as the first modern man if anything list is the coming man because he's the rock star and he's, you know, the Mick Jagger or the, or indeed the Roger Daltrey, you know, at least 100 years before they entered the scene. But it's also, it's going into the future with Nazism and coming conflicts in Europe, which are much worse because there's references to the revolutions of 1848 and whatnot that happened on, on the continent. But obviously what happened under the Third Reich would be much worse, the conflict. Another thing is, is it's a great time capsule for musical films because the musical was all but dead. At least the Hollywood musical was by the late 60s, uh, early 70s. They had got too expensive, tastes were changing, and there were two big flops. One was Hello Dolly in 1968, directed by Gene Kelly, of which then we'll be talking a little bit more later. And the other was Lost Horizon in the early 70s. I think that was the second Lost Horizon film, which was, you know, an absolute disaster. But the musical has started to make a, a comeback with rock. I uh, think, you know, the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Tommy, also by Ken Russell, which uh, and also starring Roger Daltrey, which was released the same year, just a few months prior to Listomania. And like I say, Roger Daltrey, um, Rick Wakeman, lots of stars of the mid 70s, if you like that period. So not only does it give you an absolute, totally bonkers whirlwind tour through, um, you know, 19th century Europe and all the like the politics and the music that was going on at the time, but it's also like an interesting little snapshot of the 70s. I'd probably say it's not for everyone. Obviously, some of the sexual imagery is a little bit uh, extreme, at least by the standards of the time. But, you know, I, I'd, I'd say if you're not easily offended, you're probably going to enjoy this film. 
and don't expect like a tearjerker about a list of you know losing the love of his life or anything like that you know he lost i think it was he lost both a daughter and a son in his lifetime predeceased him but there's nothing like that there's nothing that really tugs at the heartstrings the film is too outrageous to do that but yeah i'd say listomania by ken russell and it predated beatles mania by a hundred years but beatles fans you've got ringo Starr in it what could go wrong Rather a lot, wouldn't you say, Dan? With Ringo Starr. Oh, with the film. I mean, I mean, Dan, did you think it was just an entire experimental disaster or, or what did you think of it? Well, Ringo was kind of, um, if we look at Ringo's solo career, of course, he was up for kind of parts in movies because things weren't happening much in the solo front, um, which some would say not much has changed. I have a lot of time for Ken Russell, I'll be honest with you, um, because... Having seen The Devils and, of course, that immortal line with Oliver Reed and the plastic crocodile, the crocodile, what insanity is this? And also Women in Love. I watched this and after a while I just thought, I'm not going to even try and understand it. I'm just going to enjoy the spectacle. And I did because Ken Russell's at his worst when he's dull. And at least nobody can accuse Listomania of being dull. I could see the parallels between getting a rock star like Roger Daltrey in to play List if he's going to treat List like a rock star and have like big gigs and groupies and backstage things and, um, you know, the kind of old rock star imagery. I did think it was very brave getting a whole load of cages to do a Nazi salute at the end. Yes. I thought, good grief. Um, I'm surprised the censor let that one through. And in fact, I'd noticed it didn't run into any censorship issues, whereas usually Ken Russell does, especially with The Devils. He ran into a lot of headaches and with later productions like Crimes of Passion as well. And I always thought that for him, a run-in with the censor or the, the distributor was a badge of honour. So I think part of him was probably quite disappointed that this made it through unscathed. Yeah, yeah. And this wasn't his favourite, you know, when he was looking back. I think he felt like he had exhausted the... Um, composer biopics by this stage it was his last I think it was his last biopic of a composer although he later did Valentino and he did Gothic which was about the romantic poets in Italy and Mary Shelley's writing of uh, Frankenstein but his previous composer biopics I mentioned the one on Strauss they had been you know reasonably controversial and, and they'd employed surreal elements but they'd been mostly straight uh, straight biopics by which I mean linear in terms of narrative and possibly you know more moving as a result and this isn't moving <laughs> if, if anything the first time I watched it I knew very little about the history the second time I watched it, I'd read up on the history so it made a heck of a lot more sense but he's a little bit soft on Liszt's relationship with Wagner the truth is for most of their lifetime they were extremely close they did have that one falling out it was mostly about customer it wasn't anything political and in fact, Liszt helped Wagner escape Germany to Switzerland when Wagner had run into trouble. So, but I think Russell just felt it was convenient to to make Wagner the uh, the antagonist of, of this film. A few years later, Tony Palmer did his miniseries on Wagner, which was um, although it admitted Richard Burton played Wagner, and it's a tough watch because Richard Burton's right at the end of his life; he's so clearly ill. But it's much more sympathetic to Wagner, although it does admit that some of his views are extremely dubious. And of course, he became the favorite composer of, of the Third Reich, so that's pretty undisputable. Did were there any set pieces or cameos that that seared themselves into your mind, or you'd say were your favorite? Well, you've already mentioned Roger Daltrey's inflatable member. That was certainly one that I thought, oh my goodness. And then also just before that, remember when he's being sucked through a red tube thing? I thought, yes, yes. Uh, it's Ken Russell and his sexual imagery. I tell you, nobody could ever accuse him of being subtle. 
but I yeah. suppose that's part of his charm. It's uh, because there is an anecdote um, about women in love that you mentioned, where because of course Alan Bates and Oliver Reed have the tastefully shot nude wrestling scene, mm-hmm. um, and it turns again. Russell said whenever they came to shoot it, they uh, how can we put this compared sizes, shall we say, and find that none were, nobody was sizably larger than the other, which was fine. But he said it didn't stop Ollie having a quick J. Arthur between takes. <laughs> yeah. There's another great story about that, and it, it obviously caused censorship problems abroad, yeah. particularly South Africa, which was then apartheid, and very religious. And the way they shot it is that you'd see the two of them walk into the room, lock the door, and then the next shot of them was on the floor, naked, panting. And you're like, <laughs> uh, that creates an entirely different scene. <laughs> I don't think you've achieved quite what you wanted to achieve there. <laughs> There's nothing like a little bit of censorship backfiring, which always amuses. I'm always interested in people who broke the Hayes Code. Or, so, uh, would you say this was your favourite Ken Russell film? No, no. I think I, I think for a Ken Russell film, I'd probably have to pick something more profound. I mean, it's a lot of fun, but the second time I watched it, obviously, some of the funniness I debated because I knew what was coming. I would probably say Marla, his biopic and Marla and the music lovers are very good. I've seen most of them. One, one I haven't seen, which I need to see, is Altered States, um, hmm. because I believe that's high up in his canon. Obviously, D.H. Lawrence knew very well. Uh, you know, he did a sequel to One in Love, The Rainbow. I'm just checking. I think he did Lady Chatterley's Lover as well, which is my first, when I was a kid, that was my first real exposure to censorship. Yes, he did. He did it for the BBC, after which the BBC was politely requested never to show it again, because <laughs> it was too too strong for television, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I was just a kid, but I remember, do you remember Points of View? Yes. Where they'd read out the letters and you'd have Angry from Tunbridge Wells, and it would be invariably, I don't pay my licence fee to watch this crap, hmm. to which I'd probably say, I was like, well, turn on BBC Two then, or, yeah. or ITV. <laughs> or, or go out but yeah I do I, I do remember uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover vividly towards the end uh, that was when I think he, he got um, somewhat um, cinema had given up on him I mean to, to give you like I say I, I did mention before that you know he had a lot of falling outs this was produced by David Putnam uh, for the short-lived Good Times uh, film production company and uh, Good Times Enterprises. And unfortunately, this was such a box office disaster that um, Good Times uh, went under almost directly thereafter. But they, they released one more film, Bugsy Malone, which was a big hit, but obviously not a big enough hit to, to save them. So, so that was Ken, really. He just left a trail of destruction in his wake. But where would you say this stands? I mean, I've never been a huge Rocky, Rocky Horror show fan but where do you think this stands in the kind of rock rock opera canon i have to say that because of this more going on and i prefer tommy to listomania if i'm honest with you and i, I don't know why i've just never really got into the rocky horror patricia and i'm sure there'll be people listening to this who go what but it's just not for me whereas tommy i think is it's a great kind of musical version of the album with elton john doing pinball wizard and one of the creepiest things, of course, is Keith Moon being Uncle Ernie. 
That's just, I mean, on the on the album, it's not Keith Moon. I think it's either John Entwistle or Paul, Pete Townsend who does it. But certainly seeing Keith Moon in the movie, I just thought, oh, it's just, it's just, oh. But then he's meant to be, he's meant to be creepy. So I would prefer Tommy to Listomania. And I think I'd probably put Rocky Horror above it because of the plot. Listomania for me just seemed to lose, seemed to lose any semblance of a plot after a while. But for sheer spectacle, you can't really beat Tommy or Listomania in terms of musical things. And of course, the devils as well. I mean, I think everybody should see the devils at least once in their life, just for the sheer kind of what on earth is going on in this movie. <laughs> and also as well, um, like the Lair of the White Worms, a good laugh as well. Um, yeah. Gothic, I've seen because Thomas Dolby did the soundtrack and it's, it's another mess. But like I say, Russell's always entertaining when he's not being dull. And in none of those is he being dull. By the time he got to Gothic, you know, Salome's last dance yeah. in those ones, he was going straight to video, which was a shame. But then after straight to video became television. And then when television came up to him, gave up on him, he started making shorts in his, in his back garden. Mm-hmm. And then like a kid for Hitler and stuff like that. You know, the sexual imagery is, is quite strong as well. Because what I vividly remember in Tommy is and Margaret writhing around in baked beans. Do you remember that scene? Yes, I do. Uh, if you haven't seen the film with Tommy, any subtleties that may be contained within the album when you listen to it are just laid wide open mm-hmm. on the movie. So yeah. it's one of these things, if you're quite precious about the album, maybe you shouldn't see the movie, but if you want to see a really vivid interpretation of it, then what the hell, why not? But yes, and Margaret and the baked beans. There's, some, there's something for everybody in that movie. I tell yes. you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think another strength is is that Roger Daltrey is a good actor and you can hold the scene mm. in both those. I'm going to have to watch uh, Mick Vicker, the crime film he did later. I've heard some good things about that. Have you seen it? I haven't seen McVicker. It's definitely on the... When I was watching Listomania, I thought the same as yourself. I should really watch McVicker yeah. and see him kind of in a really serious role Yeah, and see how he handles that. But apparently, I think... Russell had toyed with the idea of casting Mick Jagger. Now, either he wasn't available or he didn't want to do it before he was too outrageous. But I think Mick Jagger would have been good. Roger Daltrey is better. And obviously, they had a prior relationship. They understood each other. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the documentary, Ken Russell, A Bit of a Devil uh, by Alan Yentop, which aired after Ken Russell died, Roger Daltrey said, um, well, he said working with him was fantastic. So you didn't know what you were doing for day to day. And he'd come in and he'd say, Okay, well, today, Roger, you're going to be sitting astride this giant inflatable um, member, shall we say, and it's going to be kind of, you're going to have all these women kind of, uh, you know, running around it, screaming hysterically in, in the throes of passion. I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on, Ken. Uh, you know, it's like, what is this? But then when Ken was ill, he phoned up Roger like a week before he died. And, and didn't reference his illness or anything. He just said, oh, I'm planning a film of um, Alice in Wonderland. And uh, will you play the, the, the Mad Hatter, or I suppose, or maybe it was the Cheshire Cat, I can't remember. But uh, you know, uh, And Roger's like, oh, of course, of course I will, Ken. I'll do anything for you. And I think he knew that no such film was ever going to be made. And then a week later, he died. So, so they understood each other. And, and Roger Daltrey gives a you know a great rock performance because you know at the time a lot of the music stars who were making films were pretty safe and conservative. You know, you had people like Adam Faith and, and David Essex and even good old Cliff Richard and you know Tommy Dorsey. Uh, they were all making films, and I don't think it would have had quite the same level of kind of intensity if if one of them had done it. I think. Uh, Roger or at a stretch Nick uh, Jagger is where you need to go for this. 
So are you saying that you couldn't see Cliff Richard doing this then? <laughs> uh, no, no, not really, no. Um, <laughs> I think that would probably upset his uh, core fan base a little bit, actually. And I think, he'd, I think he'd, he'd, he could uh, kiss goodbye to the knighthood and the... Uh, and being the establishment favourite, <laughs> if he had done this. No, I was just trying to make a point about some of the music stars in Britain who were making films at the time. But then when you look at it, it really was uh, kind of the end of the rock opera period. It's quite a short period because, um, so this was 75. And then when when would you say punk took off? Would it be, you know, the year of the Silver Jubilee? You know, with God Save the Queen. Would be Pretty much. Yeah, that yeah. would be it. That would be punk. The year he did Valentino, basically. I see he did Valentino in 77. So, yeah, yeah that would be getting into punk era, definitely. Mm-hmm. And that swept away a lot of the excesses of... Uh, well, it brought its own excesses in terms of mm. drugs and whatnot, but it swept away a lot of the prog rock and the gothic uh, epic style of rock. Well, do you know, incidentally, just here's the thing, during the height of punk, do you know what the best-selling album was? You got to tell me, it was something like The Wall. Nope. Something completely anti-punk that has seen off every kind of genre change. Oh, something like Les Mis. Okay, nope, I, I go ahead. It, it's the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever. Oh, of course. So even when punk was at its height, that thing just kept selling. Can't stop the disco. Can't stop the music. <laughs> well, well, yeah. When I revisited Saturday Night Fever about a year ago and then read up on it, I, I read that actually the disco craze was on the wane and then the film came out, the album came out, and it completely revitalised it. If it wasn't for that, the disco craze would have died a bit earlier, which I thought was interesting. Maybe that's what artists need to do. You know, don't worry about what the latest trend is because when you get people like, you know, the Rolling Stones uh, doing, um, you know, dirty work or trying to be 80s, you know. Uh, I mean, some bands transition very well. I mean, probably Genesis is probably the most famous mm-hmm. example of a, of, a, of a band, you know, jumping decades and doing brilliantly. But others, you know, <laughs> I, I think the Stones for me, is, it's kind of, their 80s stuff is just really embarrassing because they're completely lost to see. What, not even Harlem Shuffle, Steve? <laughs> well, that's a cover, so... Okay. So at least, you know, with a cover, you can't go, go too wrong. It was when I did see Too Much Blood dance mix on something, I just thought, oh, my God. But, you know, when the Stones are doing dance mixes, yeah. oh, it's, yeah. it's just, what is the world coming to? Well, I think what the Stones know now is, is we've got an amazing back catalogue, mm. almost entirely from the 60s and 70s, and then the occasional gem from the 80s onwards, but you have to be very selective. Uh, And they they just, um, you know, they just belt out their their greatest hits. Uh, These these big stadium gigs, they don't have to produce new material. And when when they very occasionally do do produce uh, new songs, they're usually dire. So, no, just just give the public what we want. Okay, I'm I'm trying to think of if there's anything else from Listomania that I really enjoyed. One thing is that... um, about the film being modern, his lover, who you see at the start in that sexy scene I mentioned with the metronome, played by Fiona Lewis, Countess Mary de Agul, wrote a kiss and tell about her relationship with Liszt. And the film is very loosely based on that kiss and tell memoir, which which struck me as kind of modern. I mean, I don't know where when the first uh, kiss and tell was ever written. That would be an interesting one. 
find the genesis of Kiss and Tell Memoirs, but it, it did strike me as, you know, that's tied to ideas of fame and the price of fame and excess and, you know, paying the piper uh, in terms of, you know, your private life just being paraded out uh, in, in, in the public sphere. To wrap up, you know, Listomania, it's kind of mid-career Ken Russell, and I wouldn't say it's his best, like I said, I'd rather recommend someone like The Music Lovers or or Marler as being one of his most mus- uh, moving films, one you can return to and it will just powerfully affect you. But, you know, it's a good budget. Apparently they ran out of money several times and David Putnam had to go out and raise some more, which, you know, didn't please him with his relationship with Ken. But so a good budget, better budget than his later straight-to-video efforts and non-stop entertainment, completely ridiculous. Go in thinking that you know that it's surreal almost like Monty Python does history does history of composers and if you enjoy it on those terms you, you may begin to realize that well actually amidst the comedy and amidst the excess the the, the history is a little bit um, more accurate than you might necessarily imagine and that's why I enjoyed the second watch a lot more when I'd read up a lot more on, on the history and could understand it in kind of broad strokes. It's, it's an impressionistic history, you might say, of that rock opera period in the mid-70s. And uh, I think it's held up really well. Well, I still think everybody should see the devils at some point in their life as well. But uh, there you go, yeah. folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, see the devils. It's a lot easier to find now than it used to be, right? Yeah. I think Mark Commode led the efforts to, to get that released because uh, I think it was at Warner Brothers who, who was sitting on the material. They didn't want to release it. But yeah, The Devils is, is, is fantastic, yeah. Right, from the from the fantastic to the um, not quite so fantastic. So, dear listener, whenever Steve suggested Listomania, I thought, well, something over, why don't I do Xanadu? And then I watched Xanadu, obviously, again recently, and um, I'll tell you now, folks, I'm going to have a hard time defending this to you, but I'll do my best, because it does have its good points to it. But, I mean, it is more a case of what could have been rather than what is. So the plot of Xanadu is actually a remake of the film Down to Earth, where Rita Hayworth played Terpsichore, one of the fates who comes down to, to Earth. And that in itself is a sequel to the 1941 film, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, which was based on the stage play. So Xanadu is based on the sequel to a film that was based on the stage play. And it has Olivia Newton-John in it. It has Gene Kelly in his last dancing screen appearance and Michael Beck, as uh, who's in it, who was previously in The Warriors. Now, the plot, if you can give it a plot, Michael Beck plays Sonny, who's a struggling artist in LA who's trying to make a living. He's painted this mural of the nine muses of Olympus, which isn't explicitly explained in the film that it's him who did it, but it is in the stage show. And they come to life and they all go up to heaven, apart from one, which is Olivia Newton-John. She plays the muse Terpsichore, but she goes by the name Kira. And of course, she just magically comes along on her roller skates and kisses him and skates off and leaves him wondering what on earth happened. So he's trying to set up a roller disco in a nightclub called Xanadu. And it is a reference to the um, Xanadu as in the um, Kubla Khan's Yuan Dynasty and in the poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And he meets Gene Kelly, who plays Danny. Now, the Danny character that he plays is a continuation of the Danny who was in the film Cover Girl, which also starred Rita Hayworth in it, but not in the same role that she was in um, Down to Earth. But So there's an interesting bit of continuity there. Now, Danny remembers when he had a muse who looked very like Olivia Newton-John, and he encourages Sonny to follow his passion and to open this nightclub 
and of course he falls in love with Kira the muse, but then she can't stay and she goes back up to Olympus and it's all rather sad until um, one of the witnesses at Xanatu looks very like Kira and boy meets girl and they start talking and everything's happy and great. And <laughs> that's the plot. No, you see, it is, it's just complete nonsense. And what you were saying about the death of Hollywood musical, this was obviously um, planned to try and do a big Hollywood musical. And it started off as a low budget thing, but then when you got Gene Kelly involved and then you get Olivia Newton-John involved, then spirals out of control in a way. Then the studio got involved with rewrites and it all got rather complicated. Now, where it works, the score is very good. Now, the score went double platinum for Olivia Newton-John and for the Actor Like Orchestra. So the songs are very good in it. And I had certainly had the soundtrack album. I bought the soundtrack album at the time in 1980 and I didn't see the film until 2000 and something because it was one of these things. I thought you've had this album for years and you know this film's dreadful, but it can't be that bad. So the soundtrack album, the songs are good, but their placement within the film is odd. For example, the animated sequence uses Don't Walk Away, which is one of the more plodding ELO tracks. And so this sequence is just full of life. It's got this plodding track in the background. And then one where Sonny's just staring at the muses and wondering what to do. You've got this thumping disco track called The Fall going on in the background, but it's actually just a rather static shot. And you think, well, surely they could have used some of Barry Devorson's incidental music for that one. But then it was when I read up that the director, Robert Greenwald, had rejected Jeff Lynne's incidental music, Jeff Lynne of ELO, that is. But Jeff Lynne had a contract where Robert had to use all his songs or none at all. So the songs had to be placed somewhere. And I think that's partly where the film suffers is that they've had to shoehorn some of the songs in where they don't belong. So that's one of the, the downsides of it. Also, I was looking at it and thinking, why are these dance scenes so lifeless? And I thought, there's something I can't put my finger on here. Why are they so lifeless? So I was reading up on cinematography. Um, it was the legendary Victor J. Kemper who did the cinematography. So you'd think he'd know better. Whereas Robert Greenwald, hadn't done a musical before and hasn't done a musical since. He's done some wonderful documentaries, but he was never a musical director. So the set design was by Marky e. Mayer Jr. And the animation was by Don Bluth, who had worked for Disney and then would go on and do the Dragon's Lair arcade game and the American Tale. And Kenny Ortega was the choreographer. Now, where the film falls down, I was, like I said, I was looking at this thinking, why is it so lifeless? There's so much energy going on in the dance scenes, but why is it not coming across? And the reason is the camera's so static, especially if you look at the first number, I'm Alive, when the muses are coming alive from the, the mural. And there's nine of them, and they are moving about a lot, uh, but the camera isn't moving with them. It's just pivoting up, you can imagine, just you standing still and just pivoting your neck. The camera isn't like moving its feet, and then it just cuts into close-ups, and then you're not quite sure who it is you're looking at, and then cuts back again. So there's all this wonderful choreography going on, and the camera's not moving with the dancers. And it's also shot at a low angle. So you're looking up into the set. And it means you can then see the top of the set as well. Whereas really what you should be doing is shooting down from um, a high angle. So you can't see the limitations of the set. It's also because you're shooting at a low angle, the, the dancers, there's nine of them, they kind of tend to block each other out. So you've then got these kind of close-ups as well. You're not quite sure who's what. And then it cuts back to this static shot and it just sucks the energy out. Well, there's two scenes that work and it's a real shame that the actor playing Sonny isn't singing or he isn't even dubbed because there's one track called Suddenly, which is a duet with Cliff Richard, uh, who doesn't appear in the film. And that's the kind of thing they could have done as a musical duet 
two leads singing to each other and Cliff Richard could have dubbed the male lead and that would have worked really well. But instead you've got this playing in the background and you've got dialogue on top of it. But the only scene where it really does work is the scene with Gene Kelly um, when they're doing Whenever You're Away From Me. And the reason why it works is it was part of Kelly's contract that he choreographed anything that he danced in or he wouldn't dance. So that's why the scene has a bit more energy to it because it's been choreographed by Kelly, including the camera work. Although it's on the barest set imaginable, it's got a nice huge room and there's not really much going on on the set. The other illustration of just how wrong it all went, if you look at the final numbers, the big final number of Xanadu, you've got this rather odd figure of eight set. So you've got two focal points that you, you know, your, your eyes being drawn to, sometimes in conflict with each other. You've got a lot of glass or reflective stuff in the center of the set, which means you can only put the camera in certain places or you also get seen in the camera. Again, they're shooting upwards and you can actually see the top half of the set. And if you look really closely, you can see the lighting rig and you can see some of the crew peering over the top. Oh gosh, that, yeah, that's, uh, that's really not good. Because you know, then what you're saying is, am I watching a movie or am I watching a film stage show? Yeah. And again, I looked at some of the classic Gene Kelly's, and I thought, if you look, this these walls of the set are really quite high, but then that means you've no risk of shooting offset. The camera can go in everywhere. And again, when you're meant to be focusing on Olivia Newton-John, there's something or some things going on in front of her. And then when you're meant to be focusing on something else, like you've got two people on a tightrope, you've got Olivia Newton-John comes in and kind of removes your focus. And, and the other thing that um, those two people on the tightrope, you think it's, you don't know how high up it is until she walks into shot. And then you think, well, they're only about four feet off the ground. Where's the peril in that? You know, it's, and then you've got one of the things that annoyed Gene Kelly, depending on what format, whether you're watching it in four by three or widescreen, on the wide shot where he starts off the roller skating around, it could be a stand-in. It's not. It is Kelly. But in the close-ups, sometimes he's cut off at the knees. Now, of course, that upset the Kelly family because Gene Kelly did do the roller skating. Nobody doubled for him on the roller skates, but it looks like he's been doubled because he's cut off at the knees. You know, again, there's moments of greatness. There's a rule, you know, in that roller skating thing. Again, the camera's static and you're watching them go by and there's so many other things vying for your attention. And then occasionally you get a tracking shot with the camera following one of the skaters and you think, oh, good. And then it just cuts away to another static shot. So there's moments of greatness, which are then dissipated by another static shot shot at a low angle where there's too much going on and you're being distracted by oh what's this what's that and I can't see half of what's going on because the people in the foreground are blocking those in the back which we'd see on the occasional high shot and so there you are and yet when it does work it work, when the musical numbers are well staged then they they do work really well and the soundtrack's good especially the title song Xanadu gave Olivia Newton-John her final number one and gave ELO their only number one like I say, I felt at best it was kind of inoffensive, like a couple of numbers worked. Some of them were missed opportunities, like you say. I mean, it should have been so much more powerful when Gene Kelly's visualising the big band set piece, you know, of his youth. And mm-hmm. um, the younger leading man is, is seeing the more kind of rocky piece, but the, those scenes aren't choreographed well enough. I also felt that the leading man was nowhere near as good as the leading lady, so that Olivia Newton-John just kind of wiped the floor with him. And it was a bit sad that, you know, hot off the success of Greece. She goes and makes this, uh, which which I imagine 
all but killed her movie career. I think she made some sporadic appearances after this, right? It killed the, the male lead's career. He did nothing after that. He'd been in The Warriors, great film, and then he does this, and it just all nosedives after that. Uh, but, but I'm saying, I'm thinking maybe we should be Cliff Richard's agent, because not only have I suggested you should have played Franz Liszt, we're now suggesting you should have had a role in Xanadu as well. So, um, I mean, <laughs> I think we, we must be plotting between the two of us, plotting a big Cliff Richard comeback. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, he Cliff... Um, did introduce Olivia when she was starting out. I think she opened for him in some of the stores, so that's partly why she got him to do the duet on the soundtrack was, I think, to pay him back for that. But that that's one of the things where the film does suffer, that you've got a male lead who doesn't sing and doesn't dance, whereas Gene Kelly and Olivia and john do sing and dance pretty well. I think having a male lead who could do that would have helped. Mel Gibson was in the frame at one point. Olivia, I think, wanted Mel Gibson, so there'd be two Australian leads, but can you imagine Mel Gibson in Xanadu? Only if he wore his Mad Max outfit, I think that would be fun. Mad oh, that Max, would have been brilliant. Yeah, meets Xanadu and mashup, that would be wonderful. <laughs> oh, total missed opportunity there. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of uh, old actors, um, I was wondering, you know the scene where they go to heaven, or Xanadu, or wherever it is, mm. uh, the voices of the two gods, the male voices, Wilfred Hyde White, who was mm-hmm. one of these crusty old English actors. He'd, he'd been in My Fair Lady, but he wasn't a singer either, because in My Fair Lady, you know, almost everyone is just talking in pitch. There's, there's not much great singing or great music at all. It's all dubbed. And the other, the female, is Coral Brown, the Australian actress who, who had a, you know, very, very good career and was married to Vincent Price. But, Dan, can I give you a bit of trivia? Yeah, go on. Okay. I have corresponded with one of the dancers in this film. What? Yes, I know. I didn't realize it until I was just about to switch it on. But to to make this comprehensible to our listeners, if if you don't already know this, I am the biographer of the crime writer James Alroy. Now, in 1977, James Alroy joined Alcoholics Anonymous because he had addiction problems, uh, and he met some amazing people in AA. And one of the people he met was the dancer Anne Berenger who was a dancer with the Tubes, which feature in Xanadu, and later became very famous as a dancer with Tina Turner during Tina's big comeback after splitting with Ike. So I, <laughs> I'm i not intruding on anyone's um, privacy here because they're both very open about the fact they've had addiction problems. I interviewed a lot of people who were in AA with Al Roy, and some of them said, oh, you should speak to Anne. And then I, I contacted her by email. She didn't remember him. She's like, I don't even remember this guy. I, f- I think they were like they weren't in the same AA group for very long. But she gave me some helpful um, tips in our brief correspondence about what AA was like during that particular period. And because I thought I was going to interview her at one point, I did a lot of research. I researched all my interviews very carefully because I like to pick up the voice of the person before I interview them. Yeah, she was in Zandu in the tubes. And apparently she said that the drink and drugs, drug use on this movie was completely out of control completely which might have some uh ghost some way towards explaining why much of the film falls on its face but apparently when she left the film on the last day of shooting she walked right into an aa meeting and she's been sober ever since so there's a happy ending to that but yeah there you go so the james elroy cameo remains on the cutting room floor does it steve <laughs> yes can you, can you imagine James Alroy being in uh, in Xanadu, yeah, al- alongside uh, Mal Gibson and Cliff Richard as, oh. as the Free Stooges of, <laughs> of Xanadu? 
So it didn't just um, harm Sonny's career, although it was a double platinum selling album. There, there were two problems. First of all, ELO Rock Radio shunned them after this because they thought it was too lightweight. Although, to be fair, their previous album, 1979 Discovery, was quite disco, although there was kind of a, a number on it called Don't Bring Me Down, which was the first song of theirs not to use their trademark strings. So you could see it as a follow-on from Discovery, but even though it was a very successful album, a lot of radio stations shunned them. So it meant their following album, Time, which was a number one, went straight to number one. It only went gold, didn't go platinum or anything like that because they weren't getting the airplay, which is a shame because I think a lot of ELO fans probably draw the line at Sanadu and they're then missing out three, certainly two good albums, Time in 1981 and Secret Messages in 1983. Although Jeff Lynne did say in an interview for a box set called Afterglow in 1990 that he, he'd had enough by Time. He was bouncing off a cocoon and he just was doing the albums to fulfil the contract. And in a subsequent interview about the box Afterglow, he said the only thing they did right was not use anything off Xanadu. But it's been rehabilitated now all over the world gets played at, at the yellow gigs as does Xanadu so it's kind of coming back into the family fold and if you want to see how easy it is if you put your mind to it to actually choreograph a number well or just film it well on YouTube there is a compilation of flash mobs to all over the world which people have just filmed on their mobiles and you've got the high up shots you've got cameras going in with the dancers and it basically recreates the energy that the film sadly lacks. And it's a shame as well, they had the tubes in, but they didn't have ELO in. I think they missed a trick by not having ELO actually perform in the film. And one of the other headaches for the film was the final number, Xanadu. That was filmed and choreographed based on a demo version that Jeff Lynne had sent in. But the demo version drifts in and out of time slightly. So it meant when they had to re-record it to sync it up to the film, they spent about three days in the studio trying to get this thing to match the timing on the film which apparently was an absolute headache now of course nowadays you could just drag it onto a computer whereas then they were operating on tape so it meant Olivia Newton-John spent two days doing um, vocals on one song the kind of thing that should be knocked out in an afternoon so there you are although Steve there is a happy ending to this story oh good can you guess what fine Hollywood institution we have Xanadu to thank for uh, yes, I think I, I know this because I was, I was I was reading up on the notes afterwards. Do you want to explain? Yes. Um, one individual had to sit through a double bill of Xanadu and the movie based on the village people can't stop the music. And at the end of it, he decided there must be some way to celebrate the very worst that um, Hollywood has to offer. And so he created the Golden Raspberries. That was Mr. John J.B. Wilson. And needless to say, Can't Stop the Music got seven nominations at the, the inaugural ceremony. Xanadu got six. It won <laughs> Worst Director, Worst Original Song Suspended in Time, which is truly abominable. It got nominated. Um, it also got nominated for Worst Screenplay, Worst Actress, Worst Actor, and Worst Picture. And also it got a nomination in the 2005 Razzies for worst musical of our first 25 years. So there you are. <laughs> yeah. So there was a retrospective. <laughs> yes, indeed. Looking back. Now, it did get a run on Broadway, a quite good run on Broadway. And that was in 2007. Now, there is one single camera footage shot, obviously, amateurishly on YouTube. And I wasn't going to sit through all of that, but you could kind of see where they got it right. First of all, they tidied up a few plot points. Secondly, the choreography isn't quite so crowded. There isn't quite so much going on. 
and also the problem with like you're saying with disco this relies on the kind of roller disco gimmick which in 1980 was building up in the uk but was definitely hit a peak in the states and this is the problem when you have a film based on a gimmick which is rapidly dating then that rapidly dates the film with it so in the musical there is a bit of roller skating but it's not kind of front and center like it is in xanadu and also the show actually takes the mickey out of the plot of the film so it's kind of taking a you know it's making fun of itself which i suppose is quite good and it ran for 512 performances on broadway so didn't do too badly a lot better than Spider-Man the musical. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> and um, yeah, so in closing, dear listener, I would certainly watch this film for the music and for the Gene Kelly stuff. I have to say something about Gene Kelly. I My dad's a big Gene Kelly fan, so I grew up on a diet of Gene Kelly. And he's made some absolute clunkers, but I've never known him to phone in a performance. And certainly in this one, I think through during the filming, he knew it wasn't going to work. And especially this one sequence to all over the world where he's in a fancy, he's in his shop getting a costume or something. And it's just what on earth is going on. But he gives it his all to be. And when he is dancing, he does it very well. And he roller skates like nobody's business. And he puts in a good show. So if you haven't seen Gene Kelly in this, then I think you're missing out. Olivia Newton-John sings well. The music's good. It's just the, the young male lead is a wasted opportunity. And... Although the choreography is there, I think everybody as well, they were just trying too hard and they weren't communicating. Had cinematographer, director, set designer and choreographer all sat down and said, who wants to do what and how can we make it look good? Then I think a lot of the numbers would have come off a lot better. But it seems to be that everybody wanted to get their big shot at stardom and they chucked in everything, including the kitchen sink. And then the cinematographer didn't seem to want to move the camera about too much. So... There you are. I have another fear as well. Maybe musicals sat around the idea of heaven or the afterlife are doomed because I mentioned it briefly earlier, but in 1974, we had Lost Horizon, the musical, mm. which was an even bigger disaster than this. Now, I haven't seen the film. I think few people have. Uh, I don't even know if it's had a DVD release. I watched the trailer out of curiosity and the trailer itself was painful, but obviously Lost Horizon is based around the idea of Shangri-La. And this is based on Xanadu, yeah, from the uh, Kubla Khan poem. And I never liked Carousel, <laughs> either, you know, with the polishing star at the, the beginning. So maybe maybe the afterlife and, and musicals, you know, uh, I don't know if there's any better examples than the ones I've given. They don't go together. What about Brigadoon then, dear boy? Oh, uh, well, you know what? I, ha I haven't seen that. And probably... Uh, slightly um, embarrassed by its reputation because isn't it like, you know, the quiet man for, for Scottish people? I mean, does some of the Okai Hootsman Manu stuff in it? It's quite cringeworthy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, um, the range of Scottish accents takes in the whole of the UK. And um, yeah, some members of my family love it. I find it a bit too twee, but I like the songs. And the same, we could go for Finian's Rainbow as well. It's just kind of the Irish version of Brigadoon and just as bad. But yes, again, it, it's been a huge success, Brigadoon. It has its fans. <laughs> I'm just not one of them. And if there is a Kelly film, actually, which I think is underrated, and I know we're deviating off topic slightly here, Invitation to the Dance is one that doesn't get the love I think it deserves. Now, it was a pet project for Kelly. It took ages to film. MGM sat on it for two years, finally released it in 1956, and it bombed. 
because it's not musical as such. There's no dialogue. It's basically three ballet pieces. You know, that's what's called Invitation to the Dance. So it's three dance pieces, each with different composers. Now, Kelly just wanted to appear in one of them and showcase European talent. But MGM said, nope, you've got to be in them all or we're not bankrolling this. And it is just basically watching dance on screen. And it's Kelly obviously trying to bring a bit more masculinity into the art form, which I think a lot of people saw as quite effeminate at the time. So it rarely gets shown on the telly. It didn't do well in the cinema, but then it's not really. It is like any pet project. You can see the love in it. And as long as you don't go into it expecting too much and just to enjoy the spectacle, and I recommend Invitation to the Dance. If anybody's listening to this thinking, oh, there's some Kelly I haven't seen, seek out Invitation to the Dance. He might be presently surprised. And uh, he had the chops for the dramatic roles as well, right? Inherit the Wind. That's right. Yes, there's one. I can't remember the name of it. I was trying to find out which one it is. It's either got Deanna Durbin or Jeannie Crane in it, and he actually plays a thug in that. And you think, That's... oh, is Do you know film, film noir? I think is it is it got some kind of bland title like Christmas Holiday or something? Something like that. But he actually plays a right old wrong in that, and he does it very well. Yeah, yeah. If it's the one I'm thinking of, he's a, he's a gambling addict. And yeah, Deanna Durbin is his, is his girl Friday, but he can't. I think it's called Christmas Holiday. I am just going to look it up very okay. briefly for you, dear boy. I think it was 1944, Christmas Holiday, yes. Right. Film noir, and Deanna Durbin is a girlfriend, yeah. Don't be fooled by the title. It's a very dark film and uh, highly recommended. Yeah, he does a good job in it, doesn't he? No songs or anything, no song and dance, no nothing. He must have been, he must have been tempted to break into a bit of song occasionally. <laughs> They're like Kevin Klein in In and Out, you know, don't dance, yeah. don't dance. <laughs> <laughs> but here's one thing I, you know, I thought, oh, I'm going to say this and this will make me sound really clever. And you know what, I went and forgot. But the original title for Listomania was List. And obviously that became longer, it became Listomania. And that made me think, oh, you know, well, maybe that's purposeful because the film isn't really about a single man. It's not about a single composer. It's about an attitude and, and quite literally a mania, the whole excess of rock and roll and the whole excess of, you know, uh, massive fame. And I think if I, if, I, if, I can, if I can wrap up as well, I, just to go back to my recommendation, I, 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 I strongly recommend Listomania. I enjoyed it. On, on the first viewing, went in, read a lot of the history and understood it a heck of a lot more on the second viewing. It wasn't quite as outrageous, but uh, I'd like to strongly recommend. From 1975, Ken Russell, Listomania. And from 1980, Robert Greenwald, Sanadu. If it comes on the telly, stick it on, have a laugh, and then go and watch something else. <laughs> well, I enjoyed watching it, but I'm glad I saw it. And, okay. Uh, and you know it, it, it had its moments and like you say it's, it's not one of these films where it's a complete disaster it's actually kind of melancholic because you think oh this could have been 10 times better but it wasn't well we've come to the end of another show and i hope dear listener you've enjoyed hearing us discuss the highbrow excesses of ken russell and the distinctly lowbrow excesses of uh, sanadu if you're inclined to go and check out one or both of the movies, do let us know what you think. And until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening, everyone. And see you next time. You've been listening to Highbrow Lowbrow, presented by Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery. We'd love to hear from you, and you can contact us by going to our link tree. That's linkpr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. Until next time, keep it highbrow and lowbrow.